when teaching or passing on the Dharma, I think it's important that teachers explain things, give instructions, help where there are difficulties. But what is probably the most basic event that takes place in teaching is that teachers convey their trust and faith, trust in the teachings, in the practice, and in people's ability to actually apply and live the teaching, the Dharma, in a way that brings benefit to their life. So, trust and faith is a very essential ingredient at every point of this journey. It's actually so important that uh, Christina and I felt it was fine to speak basically about the same topic twice. She called it faith, I call it trust. Actually, a little difference. Trust is a wonderful and powerful quality of mind. In one text, it is said that faith or trust is a wholesome, skillful quality or happening in the mind which makes the mind open and clear. So there seems to be an opening and relaxing quality about it. When we trust, we can relax, we can let go, we can open. It's grounding to a sense of being safe. This distinguishes it very much from mere belief, which tends to make the mind rather closed, since it needs to hold on to what it believes in, avoiding all new and different possibilities, feeling threatened by them. And we can see that, for example, in sectarianism. Sense of division and feeling better than others arises so easily in spiritual groups and circles. And it's that sense of feeling threatened because something else could be true or better. And that's only possible when there is maybe belief but not the trust and and a kind of a, a conviction that comes from one's own experience. We can see it arise in our own mind. When there is belief without our own experience, we tend to be defensive. When we only believe, we aren't quite sure and we can't relax. Another text says, trust produces a joyous state of mind free from turmoil. When there is trust, the mind is not upset. So if you're interested in peace, Here is a force that is very essential to it. And it finally says in another text, 
trust acts as the doorway through which all positive qualities manifest. When there is trust, it ushers in all the positive qualities of mind and heart. So what we're looking at here is quite a wonderful and quite a miraculous force, a doorway for all positive qualities. So this trust, our confidence, is a very fundamental and a very helpful aspect of our practice, our practice here, of our practice in daily life. In a sutra, uh, discourse, the Buddha confirmed this. He said, just as a burnt seed is unable to produce any sprout, likewise a mind devoid of trust is unable to cultivate anything wholesome. So it seems that for trust to arise there usually has to be first a positive or a wholesome experience of some kind or a seeing or a sensing of something worthwhile, positive. And this then motivates one to further generate and develop these attitudes and actions to strengthen that positiveness. Maybe we have a good sitting, there's some insight, and then we think, oh wow, yes, I want to do a three-year retreat. Of course, five minutes later, maybe, there's intense restlessness, so we start packing in our minds. But Trusting seems to be a process that has to do with growth. It has to do with movement. It's a dynamic factor. Again, very different from mere belief, which needs to hold on to a fixed, set of assumptions or ideas or beliefs which might be true but they might not be in accordance with reality at all. So it seems that with belief one is somehow dependent on good luck, coincidence. If the thing or the person or guru or the spiritual belief or dogma one believes in, happens to be skillful or wholesome, one might be okay, one might be fine, lucky. If it isn't, it's bad luck, one would be misled. Yet the whole attitude of mere belief is one of narrowing down, of giving away one's power, one's own good judgment and one's common sense. So, no matter what is said up here, or no matter what any authority says, unless one knows for oneself, it's really in a way meaningless. Yet, it's helpful if there is enough trust to listen and then to try it out, find out for oneself. So at one end, we could say, there's mere belief. The other end of the range is what I'd like to call 
conviction or certainty. It's a clear knowing beyond all doubt. One has clearly seen and understood and experienced. Maybe it's like someone who lives in the desert mountains. That person might have heard of the great, big great ocean, where there's a lot of water, it's vast and it's all water. And it might be quite hard to imagine for that person, even how that would look like or what that would be like. Then one day, that person would actually travel to the seashore. Getting there, they would then see and understand and know beyond all doubt. Then that's certainty. Or perhaps we hear about impermanence. We hear about the nature of things being in constant flux, in constant change. Or we hear about the ingraspable, empty nature of things. And partly we perhaps sense that's true. We strongly believe that's how things are. And then we start to look for ourselves, we start to inquire, to check up, to meditate, to pay careful attention to all our experience. And we begin to see for ourselves. Even if it's just in glimpses, we begin to see and then to know and to become, to become certain. The more immediate our experience and our seeing is, of course, the more full the trust become, becomes until it is certainty. And I'd like to look at one of trust's important aspects that I mentioned before, that it functions as a doorway or as a conductor for wholesomeness to flow. It does as much like wetness allows an electric current to flow unhindered. It's this quality or power of trust and faith that can be put to great use in various ways. Asian traditions have plenty of stories that illustrate the importance and the power of trust and faith. And often they're very much like tales of folklore. Here's one. In some forms of Buddhism, like the Vajrayana, for certain practices, faith and trust is the most important force. And to illustrate that power of faith and trust, one of my Tibetan teachers told this story concerned with psychic powers. That in ancient, ancient India there had been a woman doing a certain practice. That practice involved reciting a certain mantra for many, many years. Obviously something different from what we're doing here. As she practiced and progressed, she found one day that, not as the result, but a sort of a side product of her practice, she had acquired the power to transform stones into food. 
And since it's a Tibetan story, it was actually transforming stones into meat. <laughs> anyway, that's maybe it's a tofu. Um, she had this power. Now, at some point there was a famine in the country, and her son, who was living in a great monastery far away and who was a young scholar, he was starting to get worried about his mother because of the famine, and he went back home to check and see she was all right. And uh, he got there, and sure enough, you know, she was all right. She had plenty to eat, unlike everybody else. And he asked her, you know, how come? And she told him, and he asked her for the mantra. And he knew that mantra because he had studied all that, and he figured that she had it wrong. She didn't say it right, she had misunderstood it, and he told her, that, you know, this is not how it goes. It goes this way. And he told her the right way and corrected her. And um, she, being very impressed with her son, who is this scholar in the great monastery, become in, became insecure and changed the mantra, but somehow lost her trust and lost the ability, you know, to transform her tofu. <laughs> then somehow the son left all reassured and um, well she started to wonder why it didn't work anymore and then at some point she decided to just uh, turn back to her old ways which were mistaken ways but which had worked and she found that um, as soon as she did it that way again her faith and her trust came back and immediately her powers came back too. Now whether that's possible or not, let's not look into that. It's a good Tibetan story to illustrate the power of trust. Another way in which some traditions use the power of trust and faith is through faith and devotion to their guru. And the way this seems to work is that the more faith and trust one has, the more open and receptive one is, the greater the chance that truth might get the space of awareness that allows it to reveal itself, or that one can discover what is already here, or maybe that's what is meant by grace. Of course, that kind of faith and devotion is also, again, the risk of blind faith, of mere belief, and with that of being misled and being misused. For us here, I would say, there's the faith and trust in the power of awareness into the power of clear seeing, of opening, and of kindness. In a way, we could say it's the trust into the unfolding. We trust this process of exploration, 
of seeing and of understanding which does take place here. In a way we trust that it knows what it's doing. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, all the things that come up or that happen in meditation. We trust that what happens to us at any moment isn't a mistake. And it becomes more obvious as we go on in practice. We tend to think sometimes in the beginning, this must be a mistake, there's something wrong, this couldn't have happened or shouldn't have happened. And yet it does. It's because probably it's what is supposed to happen. So we trust that, even when it's difficult sometimes. If you think of a flower bud, have you ever tried to forcefully open one before it's its time? I used to do that as a kid. It doesn't work. It ruins the flower. This process needs what the flower needs water, air, earth, light. This process takes care, attention, kindness, interest, real interest. But the growing, the opening, the blossoming happens by itself. It does it whenever its time has come. And yet there can be tremendous commitment in providing time, space, and attention and interest. There's one way of clarifying the direction of faith and trust for us that I find very interesting. The Buddha himself made the point that we should not accept any teaching or advice because he said it. And him saying it at that time, that really meant a lot. You know, he is the fully enlightened one who says it. And he said, you know, it's not because I say it. We should not accept things because any famous teacher or any teacher says it or teachers who look particularly exotic or far out or I feel we also shouldn't accept it because it sounds good depending how skillful and brilliant um, people are in delivering Dharma talks it can sound incredibly good I have heard teachers that have great doubts about what they do and who they are have been brilliant in teaching and fascinating. Again, brilliant presentations are brilliant presentations and yet we should look at it, listen to it carefully and try it out, but find out for ourselves. Just as one tests gold by rubbing, cutting and melting, we should check with valid reasoning, trying it out, Check it with our direct perception and our own wisdom. So solid trust depends on critical inquiry and on the insights that are being revealed by it. 
In terms of the direction of, of our entrusting, quite some light can be shed by looking at the practice of taking refuge. In most Asian Buddhist countries, one wouldn't get a teaching, one wouldn't get meditation instruction or ordination or initiation without this basis of taking refuge. And it's in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha traditionally. You can look what that could mean for us. And I think it's a very important thing at the beginning of a course, important and interesting also for those who begin their retreat today. For us, taking refuge could mean to consciously take a step to entrust ourselves to truth or to, to reality, to the way things really are. Taking refuge in the Buddha is to trust the possibility or the potential for freedom, for wholeness in our own mind, in our own being. And that's quite an incredible empowerment. Trusting our own true nature, which in a way, in an essential way, is already free and complete. Taking refuge in the Dharma is to entrust ourselves to the way things really are at this very moment. Not necessarily the way we perceive them when there's a lot of delusion or reactivity, and trusting ourselves to the, way, to the way things really are. Again, it's quite fantastic to do that, that act. But it takes faith and it takes courage to trust that the way things are is all right. But it's saying that. The way life is must be right. It can't be other. If there is a problem, it must be somewhere else. So we entrust things as they are. We settle into reality. We settle into experience as, as it is. We let go. We can let ourselves fall and then find that there is nowhere we can fall beyond where we already are. And we see that in the sittings, in the walkings. That also means we don't need to struggle and fight so much against what is happening right now. We don't need to become that which we are not. It's very liberating. We don't need our personality improvement programs. We can do it, but it's not the essential place for trust. So we can relax. To be awake and aware with interest from waking up till falling asleep as much as we can. Not more than we can, but as much as we can. Then that's enough. And then trust that the rest will take care of itself. That is the exploration and discovery of freedom.
like this poem, I don't know by whom it is. It's called, It's No Good Fighting the Tao. Why are you always trying to become something that you're not? What is wrong with you? How can such small, tiny little bubbles like your mind be outside the whole, the Tao? There is no outside. The fish is in the sea. Whether it believes it or not, it still is. You're looking and analyzing the Tao is still a, mo a movement of Tao. You're fighting the Tao is still a movement of Tao. So is your stopping. So just look and see. This is it. There's nothing to be reached. Just see. Even in your darkest moments, it is. Nothing is better than anything else. And you can never escape from the Tao. And why should you want to do so? All your suffering is ridiculous. It might take you ages to see, or just a second. So come and be awake and aware. That's where your freedom lies. Taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma. Taking refuge in the Sangha. We trust the underlying oneness, the connectedness of all life. We tap into a support system of all those who share in our trust, in our interest, in our exploration, in our practice, relying on our friends, relying on our spiritual friends relying on those who have seen deeper or clearer than us. Refuge taken with deep commitment can bring a tremendous upsurge of trust, faith and energy. And, as the definition describes it, create a non-disturbed joy in the mind, acting as a doorway for positive qualities to manifest. This trust or entrusting oneself to the moment, to what is, has also interesting implications on the moment-to-moment -moment level of practice. It's the in-breath, the out-breath, the seeings, the hearings, touchings, thinkings, the feelings that we surrender to moment-to-moment. -moment. Don't mean get lost in them, but be really fully in touch with Instead of observing them from a safe distance, we give ourselves over, experiencing in a simple but very full way. And that takes a willingness, a willingness to open, a willingness to allow ourselves to feel any experience that comes along. This Lama Song Rinpoche apparently once said, a bodhisattva is one who is willing to experience any state of mind for as long as three great eons. Imagine, <laughs> now if, you know, if it's great bliss, fine. <laughs> How about doubt or restlessness? 
a willingness to say, okay, whatever it is, here, here I am. And this trusting and relaxing into what is sounds so simple. So why do we often find it so difficult to do or to be? And I think obviously it's very, if it's painful or, or hard, it's much more difficult to just give ourselves into it. That's very obvious. But maybe there are other reasons that it's hard for us to find that trust. One reason is perhaps that it's what we're doing in a way is non-doing what this is. Not what we're doing, but what this is in a way is non-doing. It's waking up but not doing anything with what we're seeing and experiencing. And we're so used to doing. I mean, even as I speak, I, I realize how much I use the word doing. It's almost how I have to speak in, in our language. Also, non-doing can't really be serious. You know, we see how it is, but then we must do something, right? As we sit here. Such an immediate reflex. Also, it seems that as Westerners we have more difficulty with faith and trust than Asians do. And one reason might be that since childhood we have been bombarded with all this incredible amounts of input, the school and TV and radio and newspapers and books and advertising, and it's constant, you know, to this day or at least to 10 days ago when we came in to this place here, or today when we came in. As a society, we have probably somewhat damaged our ability to open and to listen with sensitivity, to sense and feel what is right for ourselves, and to relax with, our, with all that. And we're paying a high price for that insensitivity. Our air, our forests, our rivers, our lakes and oceans, and our wildlife are getting polluted and poisoned and destroyed. Our society is paying through people suffering of more and more stress and depression and abuse and exploitation. It's interesting to see that certain studies have shown a close interrelatedness between the growing lack of faith and trust in our society and the increase of depression and other emotional disorders. They observe that the genuine trusting and faithful person doesn't get depressive so easily. When faith is strong, it causes that person to move forward in life. And that power seems not to depend on the content or object of trust, but is a characteristic of trust and faith. And when we say that faith and trust can move mountains, in a way it's true. The Austrian psychologist Viktor A. Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. Came to, in his years of being there, came to the conclusion that only those inmates survived 
for whom life had meaning. Those who didn't have a kind of faith and trust and conviction, they gave up, they died much more easily. They were lacking the strength to persevere in the face of torture, terror, and misery. So perhaps we could say that strong people have faith and trust, but also that people who have faith, who trust, are strong in a way. One seems to reflect the other. What's obstructing faith and trust then? Doubt, this may be the first one that comes to mind. But I don't think it's such, uh, I don't think it's the main obstruction. It's, the big, it's not the big one. The really big one is fear. Fear of pain, fear of unpleasantness, maybe fear of death, fear of loneliness, fear of insecurity, fear of fear. We're afraid because we know that fear might come again. Fear of confusion, fear of loss of control. Also of people or of not being loved by them, not being respected by them, not being accepted by them. In some way, in some deep ways, really non-acceptance. Also non-self-acceptance, but non-acceptance. Fritz Perl says, fear of pain is the greatest inhibitor of growth. And I think the other way around, it's true, too. Trust is a, a greenhouse atmosphere for growth and for <coughs> healing. To work with fear, we have to recognize it to acknowledge it and to let ourselves feel it. And that means we have to be willing to be vulnerable, to be naked, to be raw at times. And that takes courage. Courage to act in the way we feel is appropriate, even though we're afraid in spite of our fears. In a way, that's the key. Sometimes it means we sit here and something is worrying us or is frightening and then we can somehow distract ourselves or we can say, okay, let me just stay with that. Knowing, and I think that's important, knowing that if something, whether it's fear or something else gets overwhelming, it's perfectly fine to retreat and say, okay, this is enough, more, not now. You know, and use our usual escape routes, open your eyes if you have to move, <coughs> do something, you know. But to see, or to push the limits a little bit, to see, you know, we can find some courage and say, okay, I'll just feel that for a moment. I'll just allow it to do whatever it wants to do. We can do it little by little also respecting the resistance, but also being courageous. It can be opening to pain, it can be opening to a painful emotion, 
opening to an action we're afraid of. So all kinds of challenges can be daring not to, you know, daring to wait five minutes after the lunch bell rang, see what happens, benches, <laughs> or daring to, you know, maybe get up when we first wake up, even though it's not the bell, or when the, bell, the last bell goes to see what would happen if I would sit five minutes later. For somebody else, that is not a, a, a limit at all. It might be something else. I can get quite scared of the woods in the dark. So when I went to IMS in Massachusetts, there's this big, big wood behind the center. And I thought, I guess I'll have to try that one. There's a loop that takes 45 minutes, and you're four forty-five minutes in that forest. That first, just say, okay, today I'll just step, you know, go to the edge of the forest and uh, stand there, see how it feels. And depending on what time I will go, at 9 o'clock, at 9 p.m., you know, it's one thing. At 11 p.m., it feels very different. At 12 p.m., it feels really dark. Somehow much quieter, much more threatening, depending on one's, on one's perception of it. And just feel how, what that was. It was like a real intense, unpleasant something that pressure here, you know, as if something would stop me from breathing, from being there. And um, it's like really to see that I hated that feeling. I did not want to feel that. And play with it, you know, go back, walk into the woods a little bit. And somebody told me that there are they had found the Indian cemetery in there, so that <laughs> didn't help. But really, it was not clear at all what I was afraid of. Bears, they said 800 miles north, the first bears. It's actually much later that somebody told me there are bears, but I didn't know that at that time. So I thought, but a bear can maybe walk 800 miles in three days, you know, maybe <laughs> one bear did. I don't know. I didn't really think that, but still, it was so intense. But then, also to realize, okay, I can do, I can have that feeling and walk in that wood, and I can even walk the 45-minute loop. It's not fun. It's unpleasant. It's almost painful, and yet, it's possible to do it. So. we can discover that it's not okay, but almost okay to <laughs> be with those intense feelings, like fear. We need that courage to go ahead anyway. So in a way, trust means going forward. That implies again and again taking risks. Sometimes they're real risks. Very often, especially in retreats, they're sort of imagined ones. It seems that trust and faith thrive 
grows on taking risks. Small children have to take the risk of falling again and again when they want to learn to walk. They couldn't take a step without taking that risk. So we practice trust and courage, that courage to take risks, to let ourselves feel and experience. In all the different situations when it comes up, and we see that it's fear that lets us hold on. And it's faith and trust that lets go. And that's true everywhere. That's true in practice. That's true in daily life. Fear lets us cling to beliefs. Lets us cling to dogmas. While trust gets us centered and grounded in reality, in truth. And in that way it makes us independent. Practice of awareness brings trust. As we begin to understand, to see the nature of things, to see our own true nature, with that there comes more balance, more spaciousness, more transparency within. And thus with that there's more trust. We see that things difficult or pleasant come according to their own laws. We start to see that we don't own these experiences. We don't own these mental states and these emotions and feelings. So there's less identification with what comes and goes. And therefore, again, more freedom. And in that, again, more trust. And perhaps not only do we see that we don't own our experience that comes and goes, our mental states and all the rest. But we might even discover that there isn't anyone behind it all who could be the owner. And again, seeing that, there's less expectation and there's less fear, and yet more trust. Wholesome action or harmonious or ethical conduct, Sheila non-violence, honesty, the guidelines we follow when we're on the retreat, like this one, that helps to deepen our trust. As we give security and fearlessness to all around us, we're making ourselves trustworthy, and trust again will grow in ourselves. So there's a mutual strengthening between trust and our caring, our love and compassion for life. Loving action itself is an expression of trust. It's a very truthful one. To love means to open our heart. That opening fills us with joy. It also makes us very vulnerable. So, to love, we again have to trust. Otherwise, it's not possible somehow. Trust in life, trust in the oneness of life. In 
one of his last statements, the Buddha pointed that the importance also at the place of our trust. Around the time of his passing away, Ananda, his attendant, asked him who would be the teacher after it began. And he replied, be a lamp unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself. Take yourself to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth, to reality as a refuge. It's quite the statement. The statement that is empowering ourselves statement that is pointing at us, at ourselves. It's pointing at our own hearts. That's where we can put our trust eventually.